0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So, if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by... My good friend and Whitetail Nut Tom Peplinski, and the topic today is postseason scouting in habitat management. Uh, we kind we kind of come from two different camps. I'm the mobile guy. I don't own property. I don't have the ability to. Uh, manipulate it like hinge cut plant food plots. Tom, he owns his own property. That's what he's doing this time of year. Me, I'm out there trying to scout, look for new signs. And that is what the discussion is today. Really short, quick intro, right? Um, we We do have to rep our partner, Bondurant Custom Furniture. So if you want some badass custom furniture, you need to go check out BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Take a look at their gallery. These guys uh, are... I just... When when someone has a craft and they've honed it and they have the ability to take something and make it something else uh, and make it look great and functional, Bondurant Custom Furniture does that. And one of their specialties is... They take old whiskey barrels and they refurbish them into furniture, like tables, chairs, I guess, coffee tables, clocks, even artwork. So uh, go check out BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Also, be sure you guys are subscribing to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Visit the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com. Tons of great information there. And if you're not already subscribed to the magazine, you need to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. So now you get it from the podcast, you get it from the website, and you get it from the magazine. Tons of great information about what it's like to hunt in Iowa. And the best part is, if you don't live in Iowa, some of the principles that you can learn from these articles and from this content transfers over to different states. So check out the Iowa Sportsman website and magazine. I think we're good to go. Let's get into... Postseason podcast with my buddy Tom Peplinski. All right, uh we are back here at the Iowa Sportsman podcast and we are joined by one of my personal favorite guests because I know this guy is as equally a whitetail nut as I am. Mr. Tom Peplinski, how you doing?
1: Good, Dan. How you been?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I had I had one of those nights last night where I didn't get much sleep in because I had too many kids in my bed, so if you hear clinking against the microphone, it's me just trying to pound as much coffee as humanly possible.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. I'll take that into consideration.
0: <laughs> well, hey, man, I, I know you're busy right now, and I appreciate you uh, getting on the phone with me today. I, I just wanted to touch base with you to see how your late season went.
1: Uh it was about as frustrating as the tree season this year. I was hoping the, the crops were coming off. Last time we talked, we were yep. talking a lot about uh, standing crops. And uh, on my one farm, I, I actually had a hunter from Wisconsin hunting it. And uh, he had a real good hunt and saw some great deer. And I was kind of committed to my farm by my house. Yeah. And I had some standing beans and some cut corn but to the west of me was five six hundred acres of standing corn and it didn't come off until in fact it's still standing so man some of it's still standing
0: man that's uh that's kind of bad for hunting but for me i and i haven't been back to my main farm in a in a handful of weeks but now that's good for shed hunting that means that the deer are going to you know be in that area especially with all this big snow that we're we're about to get hopefully that snow sticks on the ground till about late february first week of march and then as the antlers start to drop i can get out and do some shed hunting around that standing corn and uh, find some antlers
1: yeah that's definitely true i the other thing that just kind of shocked me too is the temperatures. oh that's yeah second, what was it january 9th by my house I think it reached 60 degrees. That's nuts. And that's pretty pretty tough late season hunting when their metabolism slow down and there's so much food still available this year. And it's 60 degrees. That's, that's pretty much a death sentence for a late season hunt as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. And I, I got a couple cell cams out right now, and it wasn't until yesterday that I had my first buck in probably three weeks walk by the trail camera. And that's really? uh, that's next to a standing cornfield. I mean, there, the, there's food all over right now. There's no, there's no ice on the ground down south. I mean, around here, there's some ice on the on the ground where I'm at. But there's no ice, there's no snow, and they can eat off the forest floor. There's browse for them still, and, of course, the, you know, the standing
1: corn doesn't hurt them. See, my daughter came down and visited, and we hunted um, a couple nights together, shot a doe. I <clears throat> shot a doe when she was with me, and we actually pulled one of the cameras on the night we shot the doe, and I had two I'm thinking for sure two mature bucks, um, but all after dark. Yeah. And they were they were I think they were coming to my cut corn and standing beans, but it was all six o'clock, six thirty, seven o'clock. So there's yeah. just no reason no reason to get up and put themselves in harm's way with the kind of weather we've had.
0: Right. So, Right, so a uh, little bit of a struggle for you. The season in Iowa is now officially over. What's on your schedule?
1: Well, on my eighty by the house, I have a, a bunch of stuff um, that I'm getting ready to to go after. I I really need to turn a lot of that a lot of that bottom ground and stuff into uh, bedding habitat. It's kind of a long story, but when I bought that property. I was kind of relying on the neighboring 160 acres, which was some really good thick draws and about 100 acres of CRP that had been grown up with uh, multiflora rows and uh, cedar trees. Yeah. So, So that was really the primary bedding. So I made the mistake of planting my... 80 acres as more of a destination food type area and how I could cut them off. But shortly after buying my 80, they, the owners of that 160, took it out of CRP. or I'm, I'm sure the contract expired. Um, they dozed off all the cedar trees and now that's row crop farm. Hmm.
0: So, so it killed contract, that bedding.
1: It killed that bedding, and that's that's kind of a mistake I made was to rely on a neighboring, uh, you know, a neighboring landowner to provide bedding cover or food or anything, really, I guess you really shouldn't rely on a neighbor to do something like that. Right. But, so now I need to to hold deer on my farm. I need to provide some bedding cover over there. So I got some switchgrass. I actually started this spring already uh, burning off a whole bunch of canary grass and then repeatedly spraying the canary grass into the fall because that stuff's hard to kill. Yeah. So I'll be putting a bunch of switchgrass in. I'm ordering some conifer and uh, woody browse from Iowa Department of Natural Resources. So that'll all get planted this spring. Um, I'm removing a bunch of honey locusts to make way wave, make wave for some of these conifer pockets that I'm going to plant. So I got a lot of, in my mind, it's a lot of big plans for the 80 behind my house. Yeah. And i'm pretty excited about that because that's that's my favorite thing to do as as you know so right right um, for You're, me the hunt is like 10 of the of the deal the rest of it is the habitat and stuff like that so i'm i'm looking forward to this spring
0: I, i'm sure you've mentioned this before but how does your your 80 lay is it a big square or is it like a, a rectangle or
1: it's a rectangle okay it's, it's 240s along the road okay um, and then that 160 acres I was talking about that was really the, the primary bedding was to the west. Okay. So I planned, you know, the evening feeding pattern to a west from east, west to east into my property. And actually the first year I bought it, that's, that's actually what happened. Um, we had some really good hunting. We actually had some pretty good morning and evening um, late season muzzleloader hunts on my 80. Um, it's, but they were using that 160 acres as their primary bedding. Right. So that's, that's gone. And actually long-term, that's, that's probably a good thing for me because five years down the road, switchgrass will take two years to, to grow in, um, five years down the road, six years down the road, these conifer and woody browse pockets I'm going to plant are going to be starting to hold some deer. And in the, in the long term, it'll actually be better for me because I don't, I don't like these farms that you're required or you're hoping the deer are betting on someone else's land and coming onto yours. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd rather right. have them be on mine. Right. So in the long term, this is actually probably a good thing. So
0: Right. So you mentioned you're going to be planting some additional grasses. You're going to be planting some trees. Is this something that you're going to have to take out of your, uh, in the past you've dedicated to food plots or cash rent ground?
1: Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to take, so on, on my 80, I rent out 60 acres. Okay. That gives you a feel. There's only 20 acres left that's not in row crops. And out of that 20 acres, I had maybe, I don't know, maybe acre and a half was food. And what I would do is I would just follow the crop rotation of the farmer. So if he planted corn, I would put my acre and a half in corn. If he planted beans, I'd put my acre and a half in beans. Because then, then, a small acre and a half or of corn or beans would would definitely knock it over. Browse in the summer because it's planted next to 60 acres of the farmer stuff. You know right.
0: Right. Right.
1: And I plan on doing that, so I'll still have I'll still have uh, that acre and a half of food plots. Um, but the problem was I had a lot of bottom ground that was in canary grass, and canary grass is phenomenal bedding habitat in the summer months. But once you get in the winter, or I shouldn't say even winter, in, in the fall and you start to get some rains and that stuff dies, it just lays down and it just it ends up being kind of a carpet. Yeah. So you don't really get the bedding cover. And then I also want to get them, I want to order some red pine and white pine and spruce trees so I can get some thermal bedding in there in case there's an early, an early winter. I, I'll be able to hold deer in there in November and December if you start getting some snow and, and cold weather. Those right. conifers really help.
0: So, it sounds to me like your long-term goal here is to have the deer bed and eat and water all on your property without having to go anywhere.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And so, what I did this year is I hunted the fringes, and we talked before, and I did a lot of observation sips. Right. And I was, it was kind of an experiment to see how much pressure I could put on my 80 and still be able to hunt it all season long and actually... I think the February article for Iowa Sportsman talks, that's the whole article, it talks about how much pressure you can put on your farm and it talks about the um, first time in tree stands and stuff like that. Um, So that was kind of an experiment this year. And what I found is even putting no pressure on the the main what I would consider possible bedding on my farm without some good bedding habitat by the end of November and into December, it just wasn't holding deer anymore because the thermal cover wasn't there and there just wasn't much for them.
0: Yeah. Out so, of curiosity, does your property lay with the, uh, like, more north-facing slopes or south-facing slopes?
1: Actually, both. Both, because okay. It, it, it's, an 80, it's an 80 along, along the road the long way, if you can imagine that. Yep. So, 240s that sit the long way. Um, and then the draw that makes up that 20 acres of cover is kind of right down through the middle of it and then there's two pretty decent sized fingers that come off but from the draw to the north it goes up so that's how the hill resides that way so then that that hill is south facing and then from the draw south it goes up so then obviously that's right. north-facing. so it has north facing and south facing um but that most of that that's that's facing the south. Not all, but most of it is part of the row crop ground.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, any any other projects on on your properties? Because um, I I know you've talked about creating those very small bedding areas or micro food plots within the property. Any uh, any hinge cutting in your future?
1: Yeah. So not so getting away from my 80 that's my 80s all warm season grasses conifer plantings uh woody brows which is like your red and gray dogwood and uh, hazelnut cranberry elderberry and any of the native stuff you can buy off the Iowa and our website is all good um woody brows type species yeah so that's what i got planted on my 80 on my 120 acres um, you've heard me talk about these pockets of hinge cuts. Yeah. And, and really to, to keep that going, because um, whether, whether you do timber stand improvements or clear-cut logging, which I'm more familiar with, um, coming from Wisconsin, there's a lot of clear-cut logging in the Northwoods or hinge cutting or any of this stuff. It's not, a, it's not really a one-and-done because that stuff keeps growing. And so, you know, really you've got maybe three years maybe four years of when you make that pocket of hinge cutting or timber stand improvement or or whatever we're talking about you either you either have to go back in and do additional hinges or you have to recut the stuff that you already cut yeah because it's already it's already getting out of the deer's reach right so i'll be doing quite a bit of that i'll actually be adding some uh there's there's one area I call it the boot, That's just the, kind of the nickname that, that we gave it on that property. But the does, I feel the does are bedding too far away from where I want them to transition through this, uh, excuse me, through this transition uh, uh, food plot that I put in for them. I think they're bedding too far away, so the movement of the bucks that I'm seeing on when it's like a bed to feed pattern yeah. is a little bit later than I prefer. Okay. So what I'm gonna try and do is some some of this hinge cutting right alongside that uh small food plot. So I'm trying to get I'm trying to draw the the doe's the doe family groups closer to their evening food source is basically what I'm trying to do there.
0: Okay. All so right.
1: So I'll be doing so I'll be doing that over there.
0: Right. And so let's see, they went through and logged a piece of property that I have access to a while ago and it's been about four years now. Uh, three or four years and now the 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 timber's really starting to look nasty you know from where you know the the ground you know it's getting thicker more sunlight to the ground when you do some of these habitat improvements and I know this is a vague question because a lot of habitat um, reacts differently to different kinds of uh, you know manipulation how long does it usually take for you to go in, do something, and see the ideal results.
1: Well, I would say the the really the very next year. Is, is, so, if I'm making a pocket of hinge cutting, and it's in the and the purpose of that is to create some side cover and some woody brows, and the briers are going to come up. That's usually the first things that come in are the briers. <clears throat> really, it's the almost the next year, especially if you're talking like mature forest and timber that's got a lot of stuff like uh, oh I don't know uh, shagbark, hickory oaks um, some of this really more uh, hardwood Yeah. type stuff Yeah. I would say the, the very next year it already starts to get good and then uh, so you're at years 3 and 4 and I would say that's pretty good but even though it's thick I always, I always tell guys um, even though it's thick for us so as you're walking through it, it might be thick. If, if, the, if that woody browse, let's say you're getting a lot of prickly ash, because I noticed that a lot is, is what you get for regen, a lot of the prickly ash. If that stuff gets to be about an inch in diameter, and so the tops of that prickly ash is five, six, seven feet tall, which you'll get already in three, four years, even though it's thick for walking through and stuff like that, the bedding, the bedding and woody browse type habitat is already on the decline because that stuff is beyond what a deer can reach gotcha. comfortably. You know, I'm sure they can stand in their back feet and, and go at it, but but you can get successful hinge cut pockets and in, in actually bigger areas, let's say you do a, a whole acre or two acres of hinge cutting or logging. You know, sometimes that stuff can last six, seven, eight years. Right. Before you really need to go in and start hacking it right so the be- the best thing to do and i guess is you know we're talking about it right now is this is this is the time of year to get in there and start inspecting some of that stuff yeah And look to, see, look to see what's available is there still a lot of blackberry and raspberry briars that's a you know that's a good thing so if you're seeing a lot of that stuff that's good
0: yeah yeah
1: if you are a lot of if you're seeing a lot of dead broadleaf weeds in your timber you know that's a good thing but if you're starting to see a lot of these um, hardwood regen that's an inch in diameter, and it's in the leaves and the branches are up, you know, at our face level, which when we're walking through it, we're thinking, "Boy, this stuff is thick," but that's not really great stuff for deer anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, do you target any specific trees uh, when you're doing your hinge cutting?
1: Well, one thing I do. One thing I do is I'll remove trees that I just don't like. So for starters, this, these thorny honey locusts, yeah. these ones that'll you know, pierce your sternum, they so, <laughs> you know, they got the porous needles. As far as I'm concerned, I can, I'll eradicate every one of them in the entire face of the plant. I just can't stand <laughs> those trees. So I'll, I'll actually stump those and then treat them so they don't come back. And that's, that's my way of opening up canopy. Right. So that's, that's a kill type tree. Uh, the shake bar, hickory, is a decent tree to hinge cut. It provides, this is just my opinion now, but for deer habitat and cover and stuff like that, a mature shake bark hickory tree provides little to nothing for deer. So I'll, I'll either hack those right off or I'll hinge them. And they actually do hinge pretty good for being a hardwood tree. Um, some really good trees to hinge are more of your softer t- type stuff. So like, uh, box elder so a forester will tell you that a box elder tree is not worth anything for timber and and that's true but for wildlife benefits especially the white-tailed deer a box elder tree is a phenomenal tree to hinge cut and then let it re-sprout okay both both from the the tree that's on the ground you know if, if you if you maintain that bark layer or if it breaks and you just end up cutting it off at the stump, and you don't treat the stump, it'll just re, re-spout right from the stump, too. Right, right. <clears throat> so those are, those are some good examples. And actually, and some people will probably think I'm nuts, but I'll hinge-cut oak trees, too, because oak, tree, oak trees actually hinge very well. And when you get in these hills of southern Iowa, where I'm at, a lot of these oak trees aren't real straight to begin with because they'll lean towards the sun, so they're pretty curved. Right. So the timber value is minimal. And I, I didn't buy my land for timber value. I, don't, you know, I didn't buy my land so 40 years from now I could log it and make a few thousand dollars. I bought it for deer hunting. So if I, if I hinge some oak trees, to me, that's, I don't, that doesn't bother me. Right. And an oak tree, in my opinion, hinge cut laying on the ground will provide more food and cover and browse for a deer than it ever would in the amount of acorns that it potentially might drop right so oak trees are another favorite of mine
0: yeah that's crazy because i you know i'm not versed in any type of habitat management but i would just assume that a guy would want to leave the oak trees standing to provide as much food on their property as possible but at a time at uh in a way I also see oak trees being detrimental to deer movement, especially if you're planting food plots to try to get them to come out of the timber.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I don't. I guess I've never thought of it that way. So I've never cut down or hinged an oak tree trying to remove a food source. Yeah. In the form of acorns, so that my food plots would be more attractive. <clears throat> I've never done it for that reason. I can definitely see how that would work.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm doing. I'm doing it more for. I want to open up the canopy in that location. Right. So, so I, I look at my, and we've talked about this before, I'll look at my farm and I'll say, I'm not just going to hinge cut here because it's open. So because it's open, I have to create good deer habitat. I, I don't do it that way. Right. I take a step back and I say, where do I want the deer to bed? Because if they bed here, I can create a transition area in this location because that's on their way to a destination food source. And this is how my entrance route is. And this is my exit route. So I think about all that first. Gotcha. And and then I go in and I say, okay, now I'm going to create my hinge cutting in my pockets of hinge cutting or timber stand improvement, whatever it is, because it's part of an overall plan. Right. So once I pick that location and I go in there and there happens to be three or four oak trees in the spot right where I want to do it, let's say it's a bench of a, there's a ridge with a bench, and that's where I want to make my pocket for buck bedding. If it's oak trees right there, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say wow. Well, I'm not gonna do it here because there's a couple oak trees in here. That doesn't that doesn't deter me, right? Because like I said, I an oak tree that's pinch cut on the ground is gonna create way more food than that. You know, possible acorn production that it has. And, and the other thing is, so actually that is true. The other thing is. I don't want to provide tons of great food and forage back in their bedding because that just promotes them leaving later in the evening. Yeah. So that actually is a good point you brought up.
0: Yeah. So it sounds to me like basically you are trying to manipulate a line that these ge- these deer are using to get from a bedding to a destination food source. All while taking into consideration your access route on and, and getting a tree stand bet- between point A and point B.
1: Yeah, it's 100% correct. Okay. Yep. Point a, point a, is bedding. Point B is destination food. How can I get in between them? How can I create a transition area? And I plan that all out ahead of time. Yeah. How can I get in? How to, can I get into my transition area? Which is one of the most important things. Yeah. You know, what's my entrance? What's my exit? And once I figure all that out. Then I'll go and put my bedding area in, in the form of, you know, the harvesting or the hinge cutting. And then I'll clear out a little spot for a transition food source. And I'll put my mock scrape in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that's, that's hundred percent correct. And I think, and actually I see this when I help other hunters on their properties is they'll do just the opposite is they'll, they'll go into an area that's open and they'll tell themselves, well, it's all open here. This is all shagbark hickory. This is all whatever it is. So, I don't want to have any land or any acreage on my property that's you know quote unquote wasted. So they'll create this phenomenal bedding in this in this certain area with no thought to what is what does this do for me. So now I'm going to attract I'm going to attract these deer during the day to this bedding area that I just created and it's right next to their only access to their farm.
0: Right. So right. They've,
1: just, they've just created this great bedding area that they have to walk by every single day to access the rest of the farm. Yeah. I, I see that a lot. I see it all the time. Yeah. So, so one of the things I guess I'd throw right back on your podcast here is if people are listening, just take that into account. Before right. you Before you cut a single tree or plant any kind of habitat improvements, that's got to be part of an overall plan
0: right man i tell you what uh finding those tree stand those those perfect tree stand locations can be difficult you know it could be a perfect tree stand location but the access getting into that is horrible and you're just blowing deer out and i'll tell you what i have a couple stands that during the rut i'll roll the dice and take a risky uh entrance entrance route in so then when i get to the the stand it's a basically a, a loctite location but you know you roll those you roll that dice if it's let's say an early season uh, early season and deer are more on a pattern as opposed to the rut where they're kind of all over the place i feel like it, you know it's one of those things it's risk versus reward and but access you know there a lot of people will talk talk about how access to the tree stand is more important than the actual location of the tree stand
1: i believe that's for for 95% of the hunters out there, that is yeah. entirely true, because most of us, I mean, I feel, I'm, I feel that I am very fortunate to own the two farms that I have, 80 and 120 acres. I think that might even be above average. I mean, most guys don't have that. Right, so most, right. So most guys are hunting, maybe they're lucky, and their uncle has a 300-acre farm, or you know, maybe a brother or a couple of guys own a forty together. So it's never more important when you're hunting one farm and maybe you're sharing that farm with a hunter or two that to not burn that farm out so that you have season-long hunting and and you have a legitimate chance of seeing some deer and hunting some nice bucks, that is entirely one of the most important things is your access in and out of your stands because even if you do everything else right, if you just start bumping deer come October 1st season opener you're just bumping deer every time you go in every time you go out and even on stand that that farm is just going to get burned out I don't care how much good food you have there I don't care how much good bedding and for me sometimes it's frustrating and I know this might sound like a little bit of a rant but you watch this you watch these hunting shows and they don't necessarily have to do that because they got thousands of acres and fifteen different farms, and it's just not the same. And I'm not—don't get me wrong—I wish I was that. <laughs> <So it's not laughs> well, like, those deer uh, are
0: conditioned to—they're also conditioned to uh, accepting humans, right? I mean, some of these—some of these people, you know, yeah, they may leave them alone, and they're completely unpressured going into the season. But also, some of them are out there. Do, checking trail cameras every single day and the deer get used to a ATV or side-by-side pulling up to a box blind and they become comfortable with that. And then the next thing you know, you have, you know, a 15 a acre food plot that is just loaded with deer at three in the morning or three in the afternoon, <laughs> you know, in the the second week of October.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, think about that 15 acre food plot. So and some of these guys, and they're doing that. Yeah. So it's a fifteen acres of standing corn at four hundred dollars an acre, so that's a six thousand dollar food plot. Yeah. I mean most guys can't do that. Right. They just even if they had the acreage, they can't they're not gonna tell their family, Oh, by the way, I'm gonna spend six thousand dollars on a corn food plot so I can shoot a nice buck off of it. Yeah, you'd have to come. That way. You'd
0: have to come visit me in the hospital if I spent six thousand dollars <laughs> on anything. <Yeah. laughs> that yeah, that was know, deer related. <laughs> and
1: again, I'm not. I'm not cutting those guys down. I'm right. Not, we all we all are like, well, I, that'd be nice to have that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: But, but at the same token, you got to take what you're watching on this, some of this stuff with a grain of salt because we can't we can't get away with that. We can't go to these, you know, one time in stands. You know, they they talk about um it's it's the first time in that matters because i yeah. have this stand and it's the first time in well they're doing that because they have 40 of them they have 40 first time in fans right so right you know on my 80 i don't have 40 first time in fans because that's you know i have a half a dozen fans and they're all fringe stands because if i start going in inside on this 80 it's it's going to be done before it even starts
0: yeah Yeah, that kind of explains my rut, man. I tell you, I had November 1st, I went in because I had the perfect wind. And I had to wait until November 13th, the next time I felt confident going into that stand. And it paid off, but, you know, just like having to juggle the... The stand rotation and knowing, you know, me, I'm mobile, so I'm bouncing around all over the place. I may be hunting the same bedding area, but, you know, bedding area or food source or transition, but just coming in from a different way or setting up in a different tree. And uh, it's uh, it's crazy. It's uh, it's definitely a chess match. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's what makes it fun though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ne-
0: Next question I have for you is all right. So, you you've got these properties, right? And and you got them pretty locked down knowing where everything's at. Do you still go and do any post-season scouting this time of year when all the vegetation is dead?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, if if, if for no other reason, then it's the little kid in me that has to go back in and in right. these areas that I won't go during the season. So these little bedding pockets that I've made and and stuff like that. The 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 kid in me, the twelve year old kid that started bow hunting with my dad and, and stuff like that, I'm gonna go in there. Even if I don't need to. Even if I'm confident that, you know, heck I made this pocket last year and I saw the Doe family groups going in there every single evening like I, or every morning like I thought they would and everything, I'm still gonna go in and Bumble around in there and see what's going on, and check out the height of the brows, and
0: yeah, you yeah. Know, are
1: there some down trees that I didn't expect? So now they're leaving instead of coming out north. They're coming, kind of coming out east, and yeah, absolutely. Right. I do a lot of, lot of scouting. You know, a lot of guys do uh, the shed hunting, which isn't really necessarily this time of year. But that's and me and you talked about this before too. I really think that's the reason why I don't find any sheds is because I go in. At nine o'clock in the morning on my shed hunt with my son and my daughter, whoever, and by nine fifteen, I'm not looking for sheds anymore. I'm looking at deer trails and where the rubs are, <laughs> and the where the habitat is, and I'm not
0: seeing yeah. any
1: sheds because I'm I'm looking beyond that. So but, yeah,
0: it's almost like you're doing you're not necessarily doing any scouting. You're basically just going in there to see the the property and what you need to do for maybe some spring cleanup or upcoming uh, habitat management.
1: Yeah, that, that's true, but the other thing, that's true, but I'll give you an example. I have this, I have this spot on my 120 acres that I call um, Cage Fight, and actually a friend of mine hunted there, and he nicknamed it Cage Fight, because so it's this little transition plot, and it's so grown up around, around this little bitty 10th acre green food plot I have of like um, shingle oaks, I think is what they're called, Yep. that you can't see, like beyond the food plot so you're sitting kind of off the edge of the food plot you can see it a little bit it's a transition area but beyond that you really can't see until the deer actually enter because of these shingle oaks so he nicknamed it cage fight and i sat there a couple times this year um and all the deer were coming out of this one corner always no matter what when the deer came into this little food source they'd eat nibble around uh, if it was bucks, they'd be chasing those around and that quitting time, they'd be gone out to the destination plot. But they always came in this corner. And really where my stand is, it'd be better situa- situated if I could take advantage of that movement. So that's an example of I didn't get down from my stand in November at 10 o'clock in the morning and go to that corner and start walking around. I'll do it I'll do it the next time I get in there now after season. So that's that's an example of even though, in my mind, I have things planned out, there's still, you know, what you would call micro-travel patterns, whether it's, you know, 20 yards or 50 yards off from where I think it should be. And when you're bow hunting, you need to figure that out because you can't be off by 20 yards. Right. If you're looking for a 30 or 35-yard shot, and if, and if the deer pattern is a 50-yard, 50, 50 yards away, that means you're off 20, 30 yards. You see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: But I don't, I don't do those walkabouts during the season. I just don't. Um, so I'll get, I'll get in there this year, and then uh, I'll figure out why, why they're using that corner yeah. so heavily. And then if I can move my – I have a ladder stand in there. <clears throat> if I can move my ladder stand and take advantage of that, I'll do it. Yeah. So And, there, and there's other examples of spots where five, six years ago when I hung a stand – all the deer would come by and now it seems like they're all you know off a little bit yeah so I'll, I'll need to figure out why and then i'll have to go in and and probably tweak the stand and move it 20 or 30 yards that's, yeah that's actually pretty common yeah to do that.
0: i tell you what man I, I went to um and that's one of one reason why i'm mobile is i share i share the property that i hunt with other hunters and they have fixed tree stand locations and I feel like over the years the these deer just know right they, they start to alter their route by you know five yards ten yards twenty yards next thing you know they're out of shooting distance from that tree stand and in the past I have flanked those positions when I when I go in mobile and I've had some really good encounters And even shot uh, in 2012 shot my buck doing that where I would flank one of their fixed tree stand positions because I noticed that when I went in there on my first time in all the deer movement was just outside of bow range of that particular fixed tree stand. So I would set set up to where now I had the wind advantage when the tree stand would say was would be blowing towards the, the deer movement and i sat up uh outside of that and the deer would be coming in front of me in between myself and the other tree stand and i tell you what i had some really really good luck um as far as encounters and, and uh, killing my buck in 2012 so um you know on the opposite end you sounds like realize that and now you got to move your tree stands or alter the, their position or alter the terrain to get them either back on course or put yourself within shooting range of their new travel pattern
1: yeah yeah and it's usually a case of my i'm moving my stand because most of my stands are at these transition areas right so there's a reason there's a reason it, and it i know this sounds so old outdoor magazine news article or article type ish thing but it's it's as simple as a tree fell on a fence 100 yards away that i'm not aware of so i was hunting this fence crossing that's out of my sight and now there's another fence crossing you see what i'm saying
0: oh absolutely absolutely
1: so so now i got to get in there and i either so generally what i'll do is if the stand was perfect before this happened then I'll take a chainsaw in there and I'll cut that tree out, and I'll repair the fence and I so that the original fence crossing is now the viable crossing and my stand will get good again. Yeah, and then, you know maybe the wind came through and knocked a bunch of trees down or something like that. In in that case, if it altered the pattern, you know then I'll then I'll move the stand. Right. Type of thing, but very rarely is a stand just good forever. Just right. Especially when you get into these transition areas or the downwind side of bedding. Just because of the, you know how we started the uh, program today. Yeah. These bedding areas move, and the deer might be bedding in a certain spot, whether it was man-made or nature-made. And over the years, that that bedding pattern is going to get moved. The feeding pattern is going to get moved, even if it's 50 yards.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: we're, not, we're not using high-powered rifles in October and November, so you got to you got to be within that roundhouse. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Got to stay on top of it.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. I, I have to share a really cool experience. Um, I I was hunting this pinch point, and it was it was like the perfect pinch point with a um, a fence crossing because a tree blew down on the fence, and I just hunted right where that tree came down. And over the years, just tons of great trail camera pictures come coming in and out of there. And then that slowed down. And then during a shed hunt, I noticed that up the fence row another tree had fallen down over top of the fence and so i said i gotta fix this so i went into the timber and i took i found a whole bunch of dead logs and branches and i stacked them up in front of that uh i didn't have a chainsaw to fix the fence i told the landowner about it but you know is what it is stacked a whole bunch of logs basically blocking that new crossing and I'm telling you, that next, over that next month, my trail camera started heating up again, and they started using that. So something so simple can alter their their movement by a lot.
1: And it usually is, right? Yeah. I mean, it really is. It usually is. With the, I shouldn't say the problem, but what happens a lot is guys will hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt, and come January 10th, it's almost like a sigh of relief, almost. For me, it's not. But in some cases, it's like, oh, I can take a break, not getting up at 5 in the morning anymore, and then they forget about it. Right. And then pretty soon it's September, and that's the last, that's the last time you want to go in and start firing up chainsaws and moving tree stands. I mean, you're mobile, so that's a little different. But for guys on, on private land, this is my opinion, but you don't want to be firing up chainsaws and, and going nuts yeah before season opener so it's if you can hang on for one more month and in the winter months just kind of go back in and do all that tweaking and stuff you're far better off
0: right right and i'll tell you this i've kind of given myself a rule made a rule uh over the you know last seven years to where i'll go in i'll do some i'll do some tree stand maintenance i'll uh you know put some tree stands up throughout the summer months but as soon as september 1st hits i try to not even touch the farm so there is 30 days before october 1st where the farm just sits dead um now uh there's other people on the farm that don't necessarily live by that rule but even just me going in and not uh you know not doing anything to it is just that much less pressure on those properties before hunting and then obviously the more that uh, you know the the older my kids get the more activities the less you know the less i actually am hunting on that farm other than outside the rut you know that just means that there's more time even going into the you know halfway to three weeks into october before i even touch it uh that's just it just lets the farm set for a little bit gets people off of it uh or at least one less person off of it uh trail cameras <laughs> trail cameras uh seem to say otherwise but uh you know it's just one less person bumping deer off of it so i try to live by that and uh maybe it maybe it helps maybe it doesn't
1: oh i'm sure it does i'm sure it helps the least amount of pressure you can put on the local deer herd yeah in and around the hunting season it, absolutely it's gonna help
0: yeah yeah. Yeah. So I kind of want to, you know, we've talked about the guys who have the have the property to, to do some of these things. I, you know, I'm I'm on the other side of the, uh, of the, the spectrum where I don't have the ability to go in and hinge cut. I don't have the ability necessarily to plan a food plot. I'm sure if I asked, I could probably go in and do it. I just haven't really done that yet because it's not my property. And uh, I don't want the landowner to think that I'm overstepping my boundaries, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I really, I really have never done that. I'm sure, you know, if I said, Hey, can I block off a piece of your pasture and plant a food plot there? So the, you know, like just an acre or two and frost seed, some clover or whatever. I think she would probably be okay with it because I've been hunting there a lot and I've helped, but for the most part, I don't. So this time of year, especially now with the kids scenario, I have a whole bunch of public land that's uh, next to where I live. And my goal this time of year is to get out and start scouting. And I mean, uh, you know, we're getting ready to have a big snowstorm come through Iowa. And if that snow sticks around for a while, that just makes, in my opinion, these these bedding areas stick out because you can actually see deer beds you can see trails you can see how the deer are using the terrain and then what I do is I go to an app like Onyx and I start mapping these things out on the public and the private that I get to uh, that I get to hunt around closer to my house and just get prepared knowing you know knowing going into the season I have some data that shows okay well when I went scouting here's a bedding area all right well, when I went scouting, here's an awesome trail or thick cover or edge you know, or you know maybe uh maybe a tree fell down on a fence again, and that now creates an, a new a new travel pattern so this time of year i, I know that's really a fast high level, but I'm really trying to get out uh this time of year and do some scouting for m- multiple reasons
1: well. And there's more than that, even. So let yeah. let's say you, you're, let's say your everything you said is is spot on. But you, so you're on public land, and you decide that this one area, a mile and a half in from the nearest road, is is where you're going to target for for the bedding area. So right. You put you just start putting some miles on. Yeah. The other thing you can do this time of year, and I used to do this when I was younger. I did it a lot, and now that I own my own land, I don't have to do it. But we used to do all of our scouting in the spring and winter. We used to always go in and we would actually, in some cases, when we would find the area, we actually wanted to hunt. We would pack a stand in and go up the tree and everything. Yeah. And so are there some branches we could snap out of the way? You know, are there, is there, is the ideal tree that we want? Do we have to saw a dead popple branch off or something like that? So that now when it's October 31st and you're going in on Halloween, you're not having to do that during open season, and you you're planning your entrance is through this creek. Well, you when you're doing your scouting, the creek's got two feet of water in it. Well, now you need to figure out, am I going to take a, a canoe or a kayak down this creek? And then you find out that 15 times you got to get out and portage. So now that little half hour kayak trip is about two hours because you're getting out and in so all this stuff should be done this time of year right it should all be done this time of year and and spring is a really good time of year too like even after the snow comes off because that's more that's kind of more when you when you found it in the fall i used to like hunt uh scouting in the summer in the summer i used to like scouting in the winter and spring when there wasn't snow because then i could actually see what's it going to be like in october november that's next right year when i'm actually when i'm actually getting in here that's you know right what I'm saying?
0: yep absolutely yeah that makes so, a good point
1: um but yeah the 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 death to the death of the guys that are doing this is to not do it and yep. all of a sudden it's august and it's 90 degrees out and you're going to tell yourself that you and your buddy are going to walk in, in a, an hour and a half or two hours when it's 90 degrees out and you're going to go scouting on this public land And you're not going to do it. Yeah. Or, or if it's that nasty out, you're going to take shortcuts and you're not going to go as far in as you thought you were going to go in. And the time to do it is now. That really is.
0: Right. So, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so basically what I'm saying is we all need to get off our butt and go do some, go do some work, (laughs) whether it's, uh, you know, on your, on your personal farm or on, on public ground or, or whatever. Um, The, the more work that you put into it, the better the results will be hands down. You know, I can attest to the, that, you know, you just show up to, you show up to November and, and decide, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to pop in. I guarantee you, if you put in extra hours this time of year into scouting and looking for deer, you're going to find something that looks attractive and you're going to go in. And I guess what I'm trying to say on this, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it as we close down here, but slowing down and observing everything terrain vegetation uh, trails old sign rubs trees food sources and and getting as much information about a piece of property as you can is going to greatly i mean greatly help you come hunting season
1: yeah absolutely i i i kind of think the modern hunter is doing themselves a lot of disservice by trying to forget about our woodsmanship skills. Right. Which is, that's all we had 30 years ago when I started hunting, 35 years ago, I guess, when I started hunting. Right. There were no trail cameras or nothing like this. So all, all you had was, you know, what I'd describe as woodsmanship skills and hunting using the sign method, you know, so you're putting boots on the ground. Right. And you're finding the trails and the scrub, the rubs and the scrapes and the transition areas and the benches on the ridges. And that's, you still can't, you still can't eliminate that by buying an extra game camera with the extra bells and whistles on it. It's just not gonna, right. That's just my opinion. Even if it did, I always tell myself, even if it did, you know, let's say somebody came out with some product that just guaranteed you awesome hunting every year without having to do anything. Well, what the hell kind of fun is that? Yeah. I just, so I guess, I don't know. I'm, I use trail cameras and I I use technology when it's available, but at some point part of the hunting is just getting out there and, and enjoying wildlife and figuring out on your own a little bit too, you know? And I think that's kind of what you're saying is you just got to put in the work. And I think you're at the end of the day, when you do harvest a nice buck, it's going to be that much more rewarding for you. Looking back on Holy cow, you know, last year in January, that's when I went in and scouted this spot out and I, went and hung a stand and I figured this out and I, and it, that's, to me, that's what's rewarding. Right. So right. That's, that's my two cents on, on that, I guess. It, yeah,
0: it, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, uh, Mr. Tom Pimplitsky, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I I know you're uh, actually up at a buddy's house doing some habitat management like work on his farm.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. And then my son, so we're doing some stuff there. We're, Talking about meeting a forester today at noon, um, because he's got a bunch of hardwood, mature hardwood timber that we walked the other day. I was up, a I was up at Christmas time, and and we walked it. So we, were, I'm kind of putting a plan together for him, um, what to do on his farm, and then on my son's farm, up in Wisconsin, uh, we're going to be putting some entrance and exit trails in, awesome. probably today and tomorrow. So we're we're getting after it right now. So I don't just. I don't just talk about it. We're doing
0: it. Take action. Take action. All right, Tom. Thanks, man. Really appreciate your time.
1: Okay. All right.
0: And that brings us to the end of another Iowa Sportsman episode. Huge shout out to Tom. Thanks for taking time out of your day to get on here and chit-chat with us about what you're doing this time of year. Please go support Bondurant Custom Furniture awesome partner, Furniture.com. Please go subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. Please go check out iowasportsman.com and uh, subscribe to the podcast because uh, I'm biased, but I think there's a lot of badass uh, uh, content that's coming out of, out of this camp. So, huge shout out to everybody who's taking time to listen and I think that's it. Stay warm. Snow's coming and we'll talk to you next time.